Welcome to State of Utah, presented by Silicon Slopes Commons. My name is Clint Betts. What a week. An incredible week, although maybe that's not the right word. An insane week, fascinating week, crazy week. Use whatever adjective you want. The world's not right. Here we are. Proving the world's not right. Here I am on a Sunday morning political show. Here you are watching it. Nothing makes sense anymore. Just strap in. Because with everything happening in the world, everything happening this past week, We've decided to talk about drugs, in particular marijuana and psychedelic mushrooms on today's show. In fact, we're going to talk to three people who are actively involved in the scenes of what I just described. First is Christine Stenquist from Truce. Truce means together for responsible use in cannabis education. She led the fight against Prop 2. Actually, for Prop 2, then against Prop 2, and now there's a battle between her and Connor Boyack from Libertas Institute. Speaking of Connor, he'll be on here as well. We're talking to Connor Boyack. He's the founder and president of Libertas Institute. Also a major player within the fight of Prop 2, for those who don't remember, Prop 2 was to legalize medical marijuana. Connor and Christine from Truce started out as allies. And let me tell you, they're no longer allies, and we'll find out why today. And then finally, we're going to talk to Steve Urquhart, who's a former representative, state representative in the state house, Utah State House, also a former state senator in the Utah State Senate, and he's now the founder of a psychedelic mushroom church called the Divine Assembly. That's right, the Divine Assembly. So with everything going on in the world... So many different things happening in this state. We've got a presidential race. We've got a president of the United States in the hospital after contracting COVID-19. We've got gubernatorial race with Spencer Cox and Chris Peterson who held the debate just barely recently this week. So many things have happened this week. I can't remember, but they held a debate. Everyone said it was good. And then they got mad at Spencer Cox on Twitter and he's still going to win by 30, 40 points. Let's just be honest. Twitter's not real life. So here we are. There's so many different things happening in the state, in the country, in the world. Again, our president is in the hospital after contracting COVID-19. He also debated. There's a crazy debate. We talked about it on the State of the Union podcast. Uh, I do that podcast with Liz Converse, who kind of runs Silicon Slopes Commons. I'm not sure why I'm here. She runs it. But check it out. Check Liz out. We record that thing every Wednesday. It's put out every Wednesday. We also release the full interviews from the show you're about to, you're watching, not you're about to watch, you are watching. From the show you're watching currently, we record the full interviews and we put them out on the State of Utah podcast presented by Silicon Slopes Commons. So, today, everything happening in the world, we're going to talk about drugs, in particular, marijuana, and psychedelic mushrooms. We're going to start with Christine Stenquist from Truce. Christine, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, of course, I think the best place to start is to tell us about yourself uh, and what you do as an advocate. Um, well, I'm Christine Stenquist. I am a brain tumor patient. I live in Davis County and um, back in 96, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor and I um, I was working in a local hospital. I had a sharp pain shoot across my face and went down. Um, about a month or so later, I had brain surgery that was unsuccessful. I still have 
um, 60% of my tumor left, but it left a lot of uh, damage. I, they hit a blood vessel, I, I hemorrhaged, I stroked and slipped into a coma and awoke uh, four days later. I had, like I said, I had stroke, so I had some speech problems. I had some swallowing issues. Um, I had left-sided paralysis or weakness from stroking. Um, there was a lot of complications and issues after brain surgery which led to me not being able to go back to the workforce. And I was bedridden and housebound for about 16 years, um, was on disability, state assistance, just, just existing really. And then about um, 2012, I hit a pain wall and my doctor was suggesting for me to go back into the hospital. At the time I was on a fentanyl patch and was getting Dilaudid for breakthrough pain and uh, Percocet at home for breakthrough pain. And it was just a cycle of being on opiates and then coming back off of opiates a little bit so that I had a little wiggle room when I had pain cycles. And I found that this was not the best uh, route for me to go when I was seeking other alternatives. And uh, that led me to cannabis. And a, a little long story behind that, but the result was that I decided that cannabis was an actual uh, therapy that was beneficial for me and um, wanted to do something to progress the movement here in Utah. So I started a Facebook page. I started collecting patients and advocates from all over the place. I was in a lot of different patient groups um, because I have multiple diagnosis. And I started asking patients and people within those groups if they were interested in cannabis or if they heard about medical marijuana and if they would be receptive to joining up with me as I kind of led the charge here in Utah on safe access. Well, first, let me ask you this. How's your health now? I'm doing really well right now. Um, I'm stable. I had a little bout for um, about the past year and a half. There was a little bit of struggle, but at the beginning of this year, I started to have a, a change and things got, they improved. Things have improved. And would you attribute some of those improvements to cannabis? Yes, absolutely. Cannabis has mitigated a lot of my symptoms. It's not a cure-all. It's not a panacea by any means. So I don't mm -hmm. want your listeners to be under the assumption that I'm, I'm running around saying it's a cure-all for every condition because that's not completely accurate. But what it has done is provided me a, a better quality of life than the pharmaceutical drugs I was on. So uh, Prop 2, as you know, I, I assume you were actively involved in Prop 2. Um, yeah, I can give you a little bit of history about Prop 2. I, um, at the time when I started to want to advocate for cannabis, I was still using my cane. Um, I, I caned my way up to Capitol Hill and attended my first session in 2013. Um, I was learning a little bit about how you pass policy in this state because I wanted to do do, do this the best way I could. My father is a narcotics officer. And so it was important to me to try to find an avenue in which I could do this legally and to show my children that if you bump up against a law that is unjust, that you should do everything in your power to change it. And so caning my way up to Capitol Hill, I started meeting people, introduced myself to just random lobbyists that were up there trying to learn how to do all this. And, um, I came across some people who said that I should go talk to an individual. So I found an ally. Um, many of you may know Connor Boyack, especially if you're down in Utah County. He uh, runs a libertarian think tank. And I 
approached him and said, I wanted to move forward on medical cannabis. And he, at the time, had done a story about a woman who was seeking um, CBD for her son for epilepsy. And this was uh, right before the, the whole epilepsy movement um, and CBD movement sort of took off. And I um, was concerned about the way they were presenting the science in the community. They were attributing all the medicinal value to just one cannabinoid. And I knew from the research and science that I had been doing for years that that wasn't the, the full picture. And so I made sure that I, I got acquainted with the epilepsy moms, um, tried to express there is more science behind cannabis than just uh, CBD and shared my story. I came across and met um, Representative Gage Frower and Senator Urquhart, Steve Urquhart. And they politely told me that this was a first step in getting CBD passed and um, whole plant access was not gonna be a viable solution for Utah. They didn't feel like that was somewhere Utahns would feel comfortable with going. And I didn't take no for an answer. I kept searching for people who were receptive. And like I said, I met Connor Boyack. And um, within a year, I found Senator Mark Madsen. I found out that somebody was interested in running a whole plant access bill. And I got a hold of Senator Madsen and asked if I could meet with him and share my, my uh, brain tumor story. He then asked me, after hearing my dramatic story, he asked me to please attend a meeting with him that was following the one that we were in, and I did. And I walked into the room with the Sutherland Institute, the UMA, and Eagle Forum. And I am unfamiliar with politics. I'm just a, you know, a mom from Kaysville. So I wasn't, I wasn't sure who these individuals were. I just shared my truth. I just shared my story. And um, some of them were taken back, but also very concerned about this issue coming up. And so it, it took several years of trying to legislate and work with legislators to come up with some kind of policy that would work. And we just couldn't get satisfaction. There just wasn't movement in, in, a, in a responsible way, but in a, in a really assertive way that gave patients the, the, the access they truly needed. So Connor and I decided we needed to do a ballot initiative. Um, I have pulled together a lot of patients. Um, I was very close and am very close to Doug Rice, who is the president of the Epilepsy Association of Utah. That was the group that was behind the first CBD cannabis bill, not only here in our state, but across the country. It was the first CBD bill we've ever seen. Um, I partnered up with him, bringing his patients into our truce group, and then also the veterans. I reached out to Drew Howells, who runs the, the Utah Medical Cannabis for Veterans group, and asked him if his, his people would be interested in joining together and pushing this issue forward. So we had a patients coalition pulled together. We um, tagged on our policy guy, our policy teammate, which was Connor and Libertas Institute, and we created Utah Patients Coalition, which is the campaign that ran Prop 2. So it was two separate uh, nonprofits who created a campaign. And that's how Utah Patients Coalition was born. Um, it, was, it was an effort to try to get the, the access that patients truly need. And so that's, you know, we went through a whole process in trying to qualify with signatures. Um, it was kind of an amazing effort. 
get, being behind Prop 2, watching people cross party lines, um, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, all parties. Um, people found people found an issue that they could both get behind. Everybody could get behind. Um, I guess what I say in the public and what I tell people is cancer doesn't care what label you wear. Sickness and disease comes to us all and suffering is the human condition. So it made sense that we were having such a strong pull of support from all sides. So Prop 2 passed, as, as you know, nobody needs to tell you that, but for, no. for those uh, listening and watching, Prop, Prop 2 passed. It, it allowed the state to create a system for medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. And then uh, something really interesting happened, although I guess, you know, this is the system where we all operate under and, and obviously uh, the legislature has this right. But immediately after Prop 2 passed, um, they made changes to that law. Um, and what were those changes and why did your group decide to file a lawsuit? Um, well, the changes that were made was they did go in and try to cut the amount of access patients got. And that was a big concern for us. They put physicians in a very precarious situation, the the language they used for the replace and repeal bill that they did in a special session a month after we had passed Prop 2. There was a lot of complications. Um, By by taking um, their version of the law, they were trying to distribute a Schedule 1 substance through the health departments, which is just illegal. And we had counseled uh, Senator Vickers, who was the, the, the lead um, senator behind that, that issue, that it wasn't possible and it wasn't legal and that it was going to put the state in jeopardy, but they chose to ignore us. And so I felt compelled to file a lawsuit. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of overreach from a particular well, I'll just be very honest. There was a lot of overreach from the LDS Church, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They did not want Prop 2 to be in effect, and they had tried everything they could to sabotage that effort. And it was very upsetting to me to see such a prominent faith be so egregious in their politicking, and to the point that it was it was absolutely harming patients, and they were condoning and promoting an illegal bill that just didn't make sense to me. So I did hire Rocky Anderson. I felt like he was the, you know, the pit bull we kind of needed to let the public know that we were serious about getting satisfaction. Um, Several months later, we started a a letter writing campaign and notified all the county commissioners, all the DAs, the county DAs, that this law was putting their state funding from the federal government for their health departments at risk and encouraged them to push back. Um, Luckily, Troy Rollins, who is in my county, who's my county DA, took a stand. And he said that Davis County absolutely would not participate in this program because it was not legal for them to participate. Um, During an interview, I called on Sim Gill to also do the same thing and he did um, a couple days later, he made an announcement that Salt Lake County would not be participating in the state's program, which then triggered um, inevitably for us to have a special session. So this is special session number two to fix the replace and repeal law um, because we couldn't we couldn't move forward on dispensing cannabis through the health departments. So that was the big the biggest parts of our lawsuit was was uh, getting rid of central fill. And what is the status of that now? Do you feel like that the outcome was uh, what you were hoping for? 
We did get rid of central fill. The other component to our lawsuit, which was very concerning to me, was the right to the initiative. And it's still a great concern and still needs to be addressed. And that's the part of the lawsuit that I couldn't continue to keep fighting on. The funding just wasn't there and wasn't possible. And we were looking at at least a couple more years of games. Um, Rocky was very good at trying to defend that aspect, that right that us as voters have to be able to legislate. That right is still constantly in jeopardy. The legislative body is, is doing what it can to make that more and more difficult for, for voters and the people to, to create laws when they feel they can't get satisfaction during the legislative route. You mentioned Connor Boyack and Libertas Institute, and I remember when all of this was uh, going on and when the, you know, compromise was announced and all that type mm -hmm. of stuff that, that Connor got um, and Libertas Institute got actually quite a bit of blowback for, for their uh, role in that. What is, what was your thought on the, uh, you know, the way Libertas and Connor, um, you know, the blowback that they received and, and uh, I mean, I assume you guys are still aligned? We are not allies. No, we are absolutely not. Um, the blowback. This is a little backdoor um, to the story that maybe many people don't know about. But in June of 2018, I sat down with the LDS church with Marty Stevens. I brought Doug Rice with me to that meeting. Um, and just for those, Marty Stevens is the church's lobbyist. Is that correct? He is the church's lobbyist, and he was the former speaker of the house. Yeah. So there's definitely a play of church and state going on. Um, so when I sat down with Marty, he wanted to know how we could stop the ballot initiative. And at that point, it already qualified. It was on the ballot. There was no stopping it. And that's what I informed him. There's no stopping it. The reason why I was approaching him was the law was flawed. Um, it was flawed from the beginning. It's something that Connor had created with MPP, and we had disagreed with several aspects of the law, but he was insistent that it needed to be worded this way so that it could get passed and also um, so, so that more people would be um, respect, you know, responsive to what we were trying to do. Just real quick, you know, I don't mean just just for those uh, watching and listening. N NPP, can you explain who they I'm are? I'm sorry, I should be better about those acronyms. NPP is Marijuana Policy Project. Perfect. They are a lobbying group that is a national organization that goes into each state trying to pass ballot initiatives. So when you see a state like ours develop a groundswell, which my group helped create. Um, the Patients Coalition was, was, you know, the epilepsy, the veterans, and then Truce captures a lot of different patients, um, all kinds of patients we, we've got. We were, created a groundswell. MPP came in and tried to help us pass a ballot initiative. Um, I was not real keen on that group, and I'm still not very keen on that group. I have a very... Um, a very strong opinion about big cannabis. And that's what we're seeing across the country is a lot of big groups that are making a lot of money off of patient suffering. I'm a bit of a purist and I um, would love to see patients be able to home grow. I would like to see a model that truly does reflect a, a free market and not the oligopoly that MPP and Connor have produced in our state, where it's just a legalized drug cartel, where a few select individuals who are very close to Connor or others got licenses. Um, 
DJ Chance, who was one of the individuals who ran Prop 2, also um, used to be the vice president of Libertas, actually did get rewarded a license and two of them, a grow license and a dispensary for his compromise work, for working with the legislative body to undermine the, the people's vote. So I, I tend to be on the other side of this. I have a little more integrity. I came at this with a pure intentions. I do want patients to have adequate access. And what I see right now is a very flawed system, expensive. It's only meant for those who could financially afford to be involved in this. And that was never my intention. So not happy right now with where our program is, but I didn't compromise and I didn't give up my integrity on what needs to be done for patients. So just to put a pin in the uh, Connor and Libertas conversation, as you think about their role in that, as you think about uh, uh, them from the very beginning of the process to, to the compromise to where it is now, I know a lot of people, I bring, I bring up Connor and Libertas because I um, was experiencing you know, people questioning his intentions and integrity and things like that. Do you believe Libertas and Connor's intentions were pure from the outset? Or do you think they got... Uh, like a lot of people were saying, uh, what they were hoping from the beginning. Well, it's it's an opinion, so you know, take this all yeah, with a grain of salt. Of course, salt. yeah, we'll have Connor and Libertas on. It's no big deal. It's it's my it's just my opinion. Um, I think Connor's motives were derived from him pushing a certain agenda. Um, I think he has political aspirations or political motives behind why he was involved in this. Um, but for the record, it takes all types to get something this big mm -hmm. passed. So if he was coming at this because in his ideals, he doesn't think people should be locked up for cages. That was, that was the kind of ally I wanted and needed was somebody who understand the political process, knew some of the people and had that ideal. He did not have the same intentions as I did. I was a sick patient that had a tremendous recovery with a plant and I found many other patients that had that same recovery. I've sat with patients throughout the state. I've sat with dying patients. I have, I have taken cannabis to strangers to teach them about this. I have a very different um, experience with this movement and with the patients as a whole and the public than Connor does. It is just a, a bit more intimate and a bit more emotional. And Prop 2 passed, right? Absolutely. And it passed quite easily, even with uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the campaigns against it. I mean, what was the final total? How Was it like? We had 53%. So, it, you know, it's 53% is good. That's thousands and thousands. It's of not votes. like overwhelming, but that's, that's no. a majority. But, but in all honesty, what happened back in, you know, May and June, we were pulling at 78%. And the church and Marty had told me they were coming out against it and that's what they were going to do. And in, by August, they held a press conference. They started to, to divide our groups up, trying to pull the LDS, the, the Mormon members um, aside and really creating quite a bit of a conflict because they were so dead against Prop 2. They were sending out very mixed messages to the community. We support medical cannabis, but it has to be under our conditions. So it was a bit convoluted. They were behind legislation that wasn't healthy for patients. Um, Connor joined in conversations because he wanted definitely to have political favor and not necessarily what was best for patients. He secured himself as a lobbyist for this issue for a long time. 
he also runs and was on um, the trade association affiliated with this. So they have different motives and, you know, it's, it's just interesting to watch it from my perspective and others. We have, I think, every right to be upset with the negotiation talks, especially since DJ, who was the vice president for Libertas, begged me not to have any, um, any conversations with the LDS church that would compromise our objective, only to have them be in compromise talks a month and a half later. So no, I think they had an agenda. I think uh, the patients were used as part of their agenda. Uh, I, I still don't like the way the whole thing washed out. So, but do you, do you think the culture has changed around marijuana usage and medical Absolutely. marijuana uh, as, as an effective treatment over the past decade? I mean, just the fact that it passed, even with the church's pretty clear opposition in the state of Utah, kind of points to a change, a cultural change, would, would you say? I would definitely say that. Um, that I think the LDS Church had to struggle with it because this is where headquarters are. They didn't speak up and have problems in other states. And I'll just remind your audience, we have 47 states now that have some form of cannabis legislation. 30, 34, 35 of them have whole plant access like we do and others have CBD or uh, adult use. So it's across the country that it's happened and not just the country. Globally, we see like Canada is completely legal and they're running a system that's, that's sort of functioning. They're, they've got heavy government involved in theirs and that's kind of what we're seeing. Globally, this is a movement that is sweeping. You mentioned Representative Steve Urquhart, who, or, or Senator Steve Urquhart, who is no longer um, in the legislature. And I'm sure you've yes. seen, he started a psychedelic mushroom church uh and uh, where we're when he's seeing like ketamine or i don't even know if i'm saying that ketamine clinics for depression and things like that what's next i mean is there um i mean could you church around this isn't that a fascinating idea it is i'm i'm very close to steve and his wife sarah and i'm helping with this project because i i have had my own personal experience with psychedelics especially this year i myself went to a ketamine clinic dealing with depression and pain and it was transformative. Um, from that, I ventured into other psychedelics. I have used hallucinogenic mushrooms. Um, it's been a very healing process. There's a lot of information and studies out on psilocybin and FDA approved uh, studies that are in progress right now to help with uh, PTSD, with depression, with a lot of traumas that people have experienced. So I'm very supportive of other therapies being used. We're, we're bumping up against a wall where pharmaceutical drugs just doesn't work for everybody or they've exhausted them and it's just not, not effective. They haven't found a therapy that works. And so I think the next treatment is this. And from my own personal experience, there is a body and soul healing that happens when you start to dive into the psychedelics. So I'm very supportive of what Steve is doing. I'd like to see, um, and he's trying very hard to make sure that it is done in a very responsible, safe manner, trying to create a safe environment for, for patients who are curious about this next step in plant-based medicine. So what's next for the medical marijuana or just the, the general cannabis movement here in the state of Utah? We've got a ways to go. Um, the biggest problem that we're seeing right now is it's just absolutely too costly. Um, you're paying almost $500 for an ounce and you can go to other states and get an ounce for $98. So we're, 
So we have a long ways to go to get it to it be more affordable. So I would like us to continue supporting um, better laws that make it more accessible, which means we're, we need to look at ending oligopolies. This, this notion that just a select few privileged individuals in this state get the, get the right to venture down this, this you know, green rush, as it were, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right, and it should be stopped. Um, we look at Oklahoma, who has a true free market, and they have hundreds of dispensaries and hundreds of grows, and they're bringing in a, a tremendous amount of income for their state that they can use for other areas. And I would like us to see some of that revenue go other places and not just into the pockets of a select few, because that's what it's doing right now, and it's leaving patients really not terribly better off uh, it's just only the the rich can get involved well christine thank you so much for coming on i'm sure we'll have you on again because i don't think this issue is going away anytime soon appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us though today thank you thanks so much have a good one fascinating interview with christine again that was christine stenquist from truce don't forget Truce means together for responsible use and cannabis education. If you want to learn more about them, go to their website. I don't know what it is, but you can type it in Google and you'll find it. Christine's a fascinating person, obviously very passionate about this issue. We'll have her back on to talk about it. For now, though, we're going to talk to Connor Boyack, the founder and president of Libertas Institute, who was also involved in the Prop 2 fight to get his perspective. Connor, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So we talked to Christine Stenquist from Truce. Do you know Christine? I know Christine well. So uh, she says she was working with Libertas on Prop 2, and uh, initially everything started out fine, and maybe now it's no longer fine. What's your take on how Prop 2 went and your relationship with Truce and Christine? Oh, wow. Loaded question. All right. <laughs> Good morning, Connor. Good morning. Let's unpack inside baseball and drama. <laughs> so, um, okay, I'll start with Prop 2. So Prop 2 is a long time coming, right? We worked up at the Capitol for a couple of years with Senator Mark Madsen trying to get a broad medical cannabis program passed. And the legislature just wasn't having it. We'd have minimal progress and then defeat and then more defeat. And so... Uh, we ultimately decided to do a ballot initiative. We first threatened it. Uh, we did a press conference and we said, look, if we you know, don't get our way, we're going to take our ball and go to the voters. Um, and so you know, we, we let everyone know that we were planning on doing it. And then we followed through, did it. Um, our team raised about a million bucks um, with a big volunteer army, you know, got a bunch of signatures, had paid signature gathers as well. It was very interesting, of course, right? Because there were other ballot initiatives happening at the time. And what would happen is the paid signature gatherers, uh, most of the, the different um, political issue committees, the different ballot initiatives would all use the same company for economies of scale, right? And as these paid signature gatherers would go door to door, they would always lead out with, hey, do you support medical marijuana? Oh, yeah, yeah, let me sign that. And if you understand how marketing and psychology works, once you say yes to something, it's much easier to you know, get that person to say yes to something else. And these signature gatherers understood. They would always lead out with medical marijuana. And then they would ask that person like, oh, do you support you know, uh, uh, fair boundaries? And, and you know, do you want to help sick people, which was the Medicaid expansion? But it would have been much harder for those other teams to collect signatures without using Prop 2, which was so strongly supported 
legalizing medical cannabis. So we got that done. Well, what happened was we had opposition from basically all of the major institutions in the state. They all got up, in fact, on stage together and said, we hate Prop 2. And what we started to see from internal polling was that while support for medical cannabis was going up and continued to go up, even to the 80th percentile, support for Prop 2 was going down because our opposition was messaging this as, well, you can be for medical marijuana, but against Prop 2, which is, you know, recreational, quasi-recreational. And so we had that split that we couldn't come back from. We tried focus groups, figuring out messaging, sharing deeply emotional stories, trying to figure out how to save the polling numbers and defeat that argument that one can support medical cannabis without necessarily supporting Prop 2. And who was making that argument? Oh, the, you know, the LDS Church was, the Medical Association was, Walter Plum, who was financing a lot of the opposition. They formed their own little group uh, to attack Prop 2. And, uh, and, and so we couldn't come back from that. Now, while publicly we're, we were messaging this as, yay, support for medical cannabis is great and all that kind of stuff, internally, we knew that we could lose. And we knew that that would set us back quite a ways. And so we decided to go meet with the opposition. And uh, this was something that, you know, initially we had uh, support from our friends over at Truce, which was one of the patients' groups, and uh, kept them in the loop. But at some point, they decided it was a better strategy to attack uh, the opposition and refuse to negotiate or concede. They wanted to just, you know, balls to the wall, go to the end. And even if they lost, they wanted uh, to attack you know, the LDS church and other constituencies for killing Prop 2. They, they ultimately felt that it was better to lose and to have the political fallout um, for their own political purposes, whereas we felt like that was the wrong call for patients. We wanted to find a way to win. And in our negotiations, we preserved 85 90% of Prop 2. We got all of the opposition to explicitly endorse the final proposal. We had... LDS church representatives, the governor, legislative leadership, everyone together in a press conference saying, we support this. It was still almost everything we wanted with some exceptions, of course. And in the time since, we've had multiple uh, legislative general sessions and special sessions where we, because we have now a seat at the table, good relationships with even the Prop 2 opposition, we've been able to work through additional problems to where the current law is better in some ways, in a lot of ways, than Prop 2 was. There are still some areas we don't like, but on its whole, if, if, if you would have told us during the Prop 2 days, hey, if you agree to this, we, the legislature, will pass it, 100% everyone would have supported that. It's just that there's a dynamic where some people don't like the LDS Church and others uh, had a voice, and uh, they decided to turn that into a political football. And we felt like the long game was a better game to play. And uh, I think looking back, we absolutely made the right strategy. So unfortunately, that caused some division. Um, not everyone agreed with that strategy. I totally get it. But it is what it is. And we think it was the right decision to make to benefit all these patients. Man, I got to say, uh, I was somewhat involved. We were reporting a little bit on it uh, through the Beehive, if you remember. You were, you know, completely involved, entrenched in this, working nonstop on this. I got to say, I was seeing uh, the response 
and kind of the vitriol, I guess is a good word that you received once this compromise was announced. Have you ever been anything, uh, been through anything like Prop 2? No, and I hope it never happens again. We, we had, you know, threats against my children. We had to call the cops. Um, I had people, you know, attacking my character all kinds of ways, insinuating that the LDS church had bribed me three, with $300,000, which is an oddly specific number to make an allegation about, um, you know, claiming I was throwing patients under the bus, people with whom I had great relationships for years, pivoting just because we were talking to the enemy and uh, suddenly starting to attack me and lying about me, knowingly lying. Um, it was tough. I'll be honest. It was, it was, it was very tough. Um, I have fairly thick skin. I think it was tougher on my wife, um, for sure. But uh, it was a testament to me of how people of goodwill need to find ways to have civil dialogue, even when they passionately disagree. And some people can't handle that. Some people just want to fight and um, don't know when the fight is over, don't know when it's better to talk and have diplomacy. And I don't know if that's, a, a, you know, an issue with maturity or knowledge or experience or what have you, but it, it was something else. I'll <laughs> to, to not have to say it in too many other colorful ways or more colorful ways. It was definitely something else. Well, I don't know if you noticed, we're recording this right before uh, or right after a presidential debate. And uh, I'll tell you, civil dialogue doesn't seem to be a part of our politics currently, Connor. Um, so uh, I think we can all hope for it, but I don't think uh, we're getting it anytime soon. I don't think the example is being set anywhere. Um, so you said there are areas of the current law you don't like. What are those? You know, we would really love to see the condition list abolished. So in Prop 2 and in the legislative proposals before it, we had a list of conditions, okay? Uh, specific conditions that the legislature would bless and say, for these conditions, you can have medical cannabis. Well, you know, during the negotiations, it was very interesting because some groups like the Medical Association wanted to just cut that list down to like a third. And then we had the governor's office who wanted to abolish the condition list and just leave it up to doctors, to which we were, we were saying like, yeah, can we do that? And, and that's, I think, where we're going to ultimately get. It's going to take a little bit of time, but we need to allow doctors to determine what's right for their patients rather than having this political arbitrary list of blessed conditions. Now, I will say that even though we have that list, it's not kind of a, 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 a massive barrier in two ways. Number one, what we were able to do in the negotiations is actually make the chronic pain provision better. So what it says now is if you have pain that lasts for more than two weeks, any kind of pain from any kind of disease or malady, if you've had pain for more than two weeks and a non-opioid isn't resolving your pain like aspirin or ibuprofen, right? We're not saying you have to use an opioid at all. If a non-opioid doesn't help or if kind of physical therapy doesn't help, right? You're getting massages or chiropractor. If you try one of those things and they don't help, you now qualify, which means no matter if you've got, you know, some other condition that isn't on the list, but you have pain as a result of that, you're included, which is why looking at the data now, most of the people getting their medical cards are registering as chronic pain because they've got all kinds of other conditions. Additionally, and the second item, why this isn't a huge problem for right now, is that we establish what's called a compassionate use board. And what this is, is kind of a one-off opportunity for patients who aren't on the approved list for their condition 
to go make an appeal, a one-off appeal to a panel of doctors and say, mother, may I, and here's my condition. In 98% cases where that board has made a decision in the past few months that they've been meeting, 98% of the time they've approved medical cannabis for non-covered things, anxiety and depression, insomnia. And so the patients who need this and want it, are, they're finding a way to get it. They're either qualifying under pain or they're going to the board. Um, and so I'd love to see the condition list gone away with. I'd love to see more industry open. We'd be at a better point if it weren't for COVID. It's taken the industry longer to get up and running. Uh, you know, we're about half of where we thought we would be because COVID has caused a challenge for a lot of these guys. Um, but I'm extremely optimistic because look, we're opening an entirely new industry. We're, we're bootstrapping this thing and you're going to have to work out those kinks. And so give it a year or two or three, the, the industry will mature. We'll have more competition. The prices will come down, you know, but on the policy side, things are already, you know, doing really well. And we're working very collaboratively with the legislature to solve real problems and make sure patients get what they need, which is what we wanted to do all along. How come so few licenses were given for companies to grow? And how would, how would, it seems like, there, I mean, there's been allegations of even some corruption around or, you know, self-dealing. I have no idea around uh, who got those licenses. Yeah, I mean, for someone who doesn't get a license, there's always going to be allegations that those who did had some kind of inside track. Um, and I don't have any personal connection to that uh, myself to have knowledge, but I, I think it's not surprising that those accusations would be uh, thrown around from people who didn't win. Um, why, why we limited it? Well, you know, as a libertarian free market kind of guy, I would love that there's no restrictions at all. So maybe one day we'll get there. However, when you're dealing with very strong opposition who doesn't want this at all, and when you do have a very real issue of, of uh, kind of diversion to the black market, right, in other states where you just have tons grown for the medical market, but then these suppliers need to find a way to sell their supply, but the medical market uh, is oversaturated with cannabis, well, you're going to go to the back door and go, you know, sell it illegally. And so then law enforcement, of course, has these concerns. And so what we came up with was a restriction where there would be a limited number of licensees, but they would be able to grow a substantial amount sufficient for the medical market with provisions in the law to increase that yield per licensee and the number of licenses over time as the market matures. So initially there's kind of the limit, but there's a built-in mechanism to allow that to grow both in the number of licensees and the amount each licensee can grow as the market grows so that the supply of cannabis kind of tracks the size of the patient population rather than having all these guys get in on the ground floor growing as much as they can to beat everyone else but then having a ton of product that they need to divert somewhere and then have our opposition see like oh i told you so they were going to divert it like we didn't want any of that to blow back against the program and cause long-term problems so we're trying to just kind of launch in the right way over time i think a lot of these issues will work themselves out even more yeah, so it sounds like it's like politics is the reason why there's <laughs> like there's licenses, there's licenses because of politics. It actually it doesn't make a lot of market sense. Right. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Period. Other than it's a compromise is 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 what I'm hearing you say. In a nutshell, yes. With one qualifier, Rem remembering that this is still federally illegal. 
right? And, and so that ha- creates a lot of problems that we have to work through and figure out. And so if this was just a random supplement that didn't have any psychoactive you know, effects, then no, you wouldn't have to restrict it like this. But this is federally illegal. You, you've got decades of bias against this plant and misinformation. You've got a lot of people with fear about what will happen if, right, if people start using this. And so we're just having to wade through that muck which is why I think as we kind of get through that, people see that the sky isn't falling and things are okay. We can continue to loosen the program and get more towards a free market. I'd say federally illegal for now, right? Um, And, uh, but you know, one of the problems is because it was federally um, illegal and is federally illegal, the compromise was, uh, the initial compromise was gonna have the health department sell uh, medical cannabis, is that correct? And then I believe that got changed. Um, they were going to sell in addition to the private market. There were kind of two channels and, and there's, they were like going to be one sixth of the market. So there were going to be several licensees and then the government. And that was part of the negotiation. We knew that that would ultimately fail. It failed quicker than we anticipated. And then we got a lot more licensees out of that for the, the private market. Mm. So uh, there, there's also this national group, and correct me if I'm wrong in saying their name, is it the Marijuana Policy Project? Yep, that's right. Um, what was, uh, when, we, when we had Christine on, she, she kind of tied their involvement to you and Libertas. Did you bring them in? Yeah. So uh, these guys have done a lot of ballot initiatives in other states. We've never done a ballot initiative. Not only have they done ballot initiatives, they've done it specifically for cannabis. And medical cannabis. So, um, yeah, we had discussions uh, early on with them for strategic input and figuring out what to do, talking to funders across the country and saying, how can we raise money? This is going to be an expensive uh, thing to do. Um, and so, yeah, we definitely brought them on board to help with, with legal input on the policy. Uh, what aren't we seeing? We've got our bill that we drafted during the legislative sessions with Madsen. We took that bill and we're going to turn it into Prop 2 but we wanted to make sure that we had in that proposal for Prop 2 everything that we needed. And, uh, and so they provided a lot of wisdom. Now, like any group, they've got their, uh, their pluses and their minuses, and they had a former leader that had some minuses that we had to kind of work through. Uh, but in all, it was a net positive to help give us that feedback in trying to run this thing and figure out the right way to do it for a team that was just kind of trying to figure it out on their own. So where do you think it goes from here? I mean, where do you think the state, like 10 years from now, is marijuana legal in Utah? I think recreational marijuana will only be legal in Utah if somehow we are compelled to do so through a court ruling or federal law. You know, the LDS Church just last week issued a letter to congregations in Arizona urging members there to vote against a recreational marijuana uh, proposal Why in do you think they do that what's the i mean i'm you're obviously a member of the church of jesus christ latter-day saints so it kind of puts you in an awkward position to uh answer this question but you know you've gone up against them in a lot of cases right uh politically why does the church get involved in whether or not uh mer- medical marijuana is legal um so it's not awkward for me as you just pointed out i've i was a very vocal critic of uh, some of their positions. I'm a very faithful member uh, of the church, um, but I was very vocal about, uh, in fact, you know, they had Curtin McConkie, their law firm in Utah, write a, a rebuttal and analysis of Prop 2. It was 
absolute garbage. The whole legal community that saw that thing just laugh like it was written by an intern. It was just extremely poor. We wrote a rebuttal to that, picking it apart. They then issued a rebuttal to Libertas Institute. So here my own church is like, you know, attacking their, or sending their, their lawyer attack dogs after my little organization. It was a lot of fun. And by fun, I mean, it was not fun. Um, okay, but to your question, why do they do it? Well, from their perspective, um, Prop 2 was too close to recreational. It wasn't that they wanted to attack medical cannabis itself. It was that they felt that the proposal was written too broadly that would allow for anyone to get it and thereby kind of a backdoor recreational. That was their perspective, right or wrong, but that was why they engaged. Once in the negotiations, we put sufficient kind of guardrails around some different provisions whereby they were persuaded that, you know, non-medical people couldn't get it so easy and that it was more medical then they not only dropped their opposition, they explicitly endorsed it. Um, and, and so that's an important thing to keep in mind. So right now, as they're engaged in Arizona, it's not to fight medical marijuana. Uh, it's to fight recreational. Their perspective well, is, go ahead. Yeah, that, that's my question, I guess, is like, is it appropriate in your view for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to get involved in politics at all? I'll tell you this, as a faithful member of the church, I had so many conversations after they got involved in Prop 2 of people who had lost their faith, who had questioned their beliefs, specifically as a result of that action. They felt that their answer to your question was, no, the, the church should not be involved in this, should not be telling me how to vote. And that prompted for a lot of these people kind of a, a reconsideration of everything they believed. And, and, and that was very challenging for a lot of these people, close friends, family. And, um, and I get it. I understand their perspective. Now, I, there's a lot of people out there when the church got involved who said, they shouldn't be involved. They should have no voice. We should tax them. They have no right. To which I say, they're a 501c3 private organization, just like Libertas Institute. If we have a right to an opinion and to engage and kind of push ourselves into the negotiating table, anyone else has that right. I, I'm a big free speech advocate. The church has a right to do what they do. That doesn't mean they have to be taxed. We're not taxed. We're a tax-exempt organization. Um, and so there's a lot of misinformation out there. They have the right to engage. Now, do I think it's strategically prudent for them to do so? I don't, right? Uh, the founder of the LDS Church, right, Joseph Smith, had a great quote. I, I teach them correct principles, and they govern themselves. I think the church would be strategically wiser to, in this case, talk about the word of wisdom, which is the health code for, the, for church members, and say, here's what we advise, here's what we require of our members, and leave it to people to vote. When the church comes out, let's say in Arizona right now, and says, keep recreational marijuana illegal, that has a lot of implications. Specifically, what the church is, is, is of necessity also saying, by saying that this should stay illegal, is that we support incarcerating people who, in the privacy of their basement and without negatively impacting anyone else, light up a joint. We, we want to treat this as a criminal justice problem. We want to cause these people to lose their homes, their, their Second Amendment rights, uh, to, to lose their, their jobs, uh, have long uh, legal problems as a result of this criminal record. Like, that just makes no sense. And so when the, the church takes this action, because they have a concern 
about drug use, and rightly so, that's their, their right and the word of wisdom and that's kind of their perspective. I have no problem with that. But when they turn that into a political and legal determination that has these other implications, they, you start to get into a lot of mud where I don't think the church wants to be. And so when they recently did this in Arizona, after doing that in Utah, they've done it in Nevada and elsewhere, I just kind of shake my head and wish for, for as a church member who, who believes in the, the faith and has friends and family in the church, I just wish they wouldn't. I think it would be strate strategically better if they didn't. Now, a final answer uh, that you didn't quite ask uh, would be the question of why do they get involved in Utah or Arizona or maybe Nevada sometimes when they don't in, you know, Louisiana or uh, Brazil or, you know, Congo, uh, where marijuana in this case has been considered for legalization uh, in the past. They, you know, when they, when they sent that email to church members in Utah, it was the first time of which I'm aware that the church has done anything like that in the state. Um, and, and, and they've sent letters over the pulpit before in some of these states. I think they do it where they know that they have the political support to try and move the needle, right? They have a concentration of church members in some of these places, whereas in other countries and states, they don't. And so they don't want to kind of, you know, uh, incur the blow, potential blowback in the media or from church members where they can't actually make a difference in getting their voting block of people to shift things and get the outcome that they want. So I think it's kind of a utilitarian approach of like, well, we can make a difference here because we know a lot of church members will listen to us, whereas, you know, in Alabama, not so much. So I think that's why we see in Utah, in their backyard, a lot more political engagement than, than the church has historically done in other places. Uh, well, thanks for coming on and, uh, you know, given your perspective, sorry to make you relive some of the prop two, uh, you know, uh, craziness and hopefully you don't have PTSD from this uh, conversation. Finally, my last question for you is just more general. What is Libertas working on currently? And uh, you've got a session coming up. You've got a gubernatorial race. I don't think you guys really get involved in races. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you've obviously got the, uh, you know, session coming up in January. Uh, what, what's your goals? What's your focus? So Libertas has now been around for about, I think, eight going on nine years. Uh, we've got a staff of about a dozen and, and we work on a wide range of policy issues. So for the next legislative session, we're working on a big privacy proposal because we see the government continue to acquire technology that undermines our, our privacy surveillance. Like Banjo, for like example. Banjo here in Utah is one example. Facial recognition technology, DNA. Uh, they can now, this is amazing. There's technology where someone can take your DNA, even just a fingerprint where you leave behind some skin cells and with your DNA, they can create a, a, a computer model of what your face looks like that is eerily accurate. I mean, we're getting into some very dystopian type of uses of these technologies. So we want to put boundaries around when the government can acquire these technologies. We're going to have some education proposals because there's a lot of angst right now from families wanting to figure out alternatives to the current environment. So whether that's pods, homeschooling, micro-schooling, private schooling, charters, or whatever, there needs to be more flexibility, we think. And so we're working on that. Uh, we're working on some local government property rights stuff uh, as well, and a bunch of criminal justice stuff. Police reform has been a big topic, um, and so we're going to be kind of tip of the spear in working on several police reform and criminal justice proposals to make sure that there's transparency, accountability, um, and you know, uphold the good apples within law enforcement while making sure that the bad apples are weeded out and held accountable, which we don't really quite have. So you're going to see a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to meet in person 
uh, still and not have to do uh, remote because they've done remote sessions throughout the summer for their interim and special sessions. It just does not work. It, it really, really does not work in terms of engaging with elected officials and having discussions. And so fingers crossed we'll be able to all be on the Hill, uh, even if we're having to wear masks and, you know, give elbow bumps. And I figure if the schools can meet, then why can't we at the Capitol? So we're we're hopeful that we'll be able to do that. We have a big agenda uh, for January. And anyone who wants to follow what we're doing, you can find Libertas Institute on uh, all the social channels or at libertasutah.org. Okay, Connor, thanks so much for coming on. I'm sure we'll have you on again as things progress. Thanks, Clint. Appreciate it. That was Connor Boyack, the founder and president of the Libertas Institute. You want to learn more about them? Type in Libertas Institute and in Google. I don't know. I don't know anybody's website addresses. This is how we're doing it. Google them. Connor Boyack's involved in all sorts of things. I'm confident we'll have him back on the show. But I can tell you this. It's clear the impact that Prop 2 had on him, his organization, and really the way alliances and politics are structured in the state of Utah. It's fascinating to follow. I'm confident the whole idea around marijuana, its legalization, both medical and recreational, within the state of Utah and the United States, is not settled. That issue, not settled. But we're not going to settle it today, not on this show. I don't even know what this show is. So we're going to go to former state senator and former state representative Steve Urquhart. He was a former state senator, a former representative in the state house, and he is now the founder of a psychedelic mushroom church called the Divine Assembly. Fascinating guy. Watch our conversation. Steve, I've done a lot of reading about you in the past 24, 48 hours. I find you endlessly fascinating. Uh-huh. Uh, I think uh, what your, your career as a legislator, uh, both in the House, you were a representative in, in the House, and you were a senator uh, as well for, for two terms in the Utah State Legislature. Your career, were you, was it 16 years you were a legislator? Yeah, eight in the House, eight in the Senate. So I want to start there because we have a lot to cover with you. Uh, And again, like I'm endlessly fascinated by what you're doing and what you've kind of announced recently. Uh, This is a political show, though, I guess. Maybe, I don't know. Again, we were talking off air. I'm wearing a tie. So uh, maybe that makes it political. Maybe that just makes it weird for everyone. But uh, I'd love to know what your experience was like in the legislature, in both the House and the Senate, and what you learned from that experience. Yeah, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, You know, even uh, some of the tense uh, conversations with constituents, um, you know, I always just figured that was part of the price I had to pay to pay to be in the arena. So I loved it. And um, in the House, I was majority whip and then rules chair, uh, went over to the Senate and uh, was chair of higher education appropriations, which I loved. I'm a big believer in higher education. I think we did some some okay work there. And then my last three years was primarily spent battling for LGBTQ rights. We passed um, non-discrimination legislation providing protections for sexual orientation, gender identity in the workplace and housing. And uh, I'm, I'm really proud of that. That was a great, great battle. Well, what's fascinating by that is this whole time you're in the legislature, both both again in the House and the Senate, you're a Republican. Um, and particularly um, in the time frame we're talking about, uh, what you just described is not entirely 
uh, in line with that party's view at that time? Or, do, or was it, did you have a different experience? I mean, what, what had you go outside of your party's, um, I guess, dogma, for, for lack of a better word at that time, and fight for LGBTQ rights? Yeah, people say, they would say, you're, you're so different than when you came in. And I'd say, thank you. Uh, you know, I don't think we should be the same person forever. Um, LGBTQ rights, primarily, um, that's where I just saw the issue differently. And I think better. I think I humanized the issue and just realized that the Republican Party uh, was in a bad place on that and largely still is in a bad place. And you, you were a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You went on a mission to, to Brazil. Uh, you represented um, uh, folks from St. George uh, and, in southern Utah. A lot of conservative bona fides in there. Yeah, you, yeah, I mean, everything I'm saying is like, you know, everyone would just kind of, yeah, that's what the legislature is made of here in the state of Utah. And then uh, you, you, you uh, started to gain, um, you know, quite a reputation as a legislature for kind of being your own person and not even allowing, um, you know, something like conservative or liberal or Republican or Democrat to define who you are. And you, you've uh, recently, and this is the main thing I want to talk about because I'm blown away by it and I have uh, a million questions about it. You've recently announced that you're launching a church based around mushrooms. Right, so I like to think that I always was my own person in the legislature. For example, uh, I was on executive appropriations and uh, there we were voting on a preferred drug list, save some money on Medicaid prescriptions, but of course the drug companies didn't like that. And so the other members of Republican majority leadership we're saying, look, we're, we're for this. I'm like, I'm not, this is, I mean, I'm for the PDL. I'm not for uh, dollars in the drug companies' pockets unnecessarily. And they said, well, you're with all the Democrats. I'm like, well, so be it. And uh, same thing in, in, fight, in fighting against intelligent design. And it's just that, um, you know, I think that I did have a lot of dogma in my life. And as I uh, shed, more and more of that than uh, I like to think that my vision did expand a bit. Um, not saying that I'm better than anyone else, but I think without doubt, I was better when I left the legislature than when I entered. And uh, I'm happy about that. So you go to, I was reading, I believe it was like a Deseret News profile, and maybe it was a Tribune profile, I'm not sure, that said you and your wife go to Amsterdam uh, you try mushrooms for the first time and you have this experience that you believe to be more than just like a chemical uh, reaction, but almost like a spiritual reaction. Can you explain that? Yeah. So that was four years ago. We actually uh, did ayahuasca and then we did it again uh, a year after that. Um, yeah, I really do. I mean, I was in organized religion for decades and uh, I started having these experiences, which I think were much more profound and spiritual than anything I had in organized religion. And I think a lot of people have that experience with psychedelics, um, but don't go the extra step and call it religion. And therefore, you know, a lot of people in psych psychedelia, they, they think religion and God are kind of vulgar words. There's a lot of uh, religious trauma there. And... Um, having fought for LGBTQ rights, I see the power that religion carries in the public arena. I see the protections 
that religion provides for what I think are really bad acts. You know, if people want to discriminate against basic civil rights for LGBTQ folks, they can say, well, this is my sincerely held religious belief. And, you know, it just so happens that my sincerely held religious belief is that if I take psilocybin mushrooms, I can commune directly with the divine and get guidance in my life. And uh, if that's not religion, then there's no such thing as religion. So what led you to start your a church around this though, right? Like, cause you could just take mushrooms uh, or, or, or these psychedelics, right? Um, and just have that experience for yourself. Right. What made you decide to start a, an organized religion? I mean, you filed for, uh, you know, organized religion status, I guess, or a nonprofit religion status here in the state of Utah. Um, what, what led you to do that? Um, a couple things. Community. Um, that's a big part of what religion is, is building community. But also there's a safety aspect. Uh, the things we do in secret, the things we do in darkness, uh, they lack protection. And uh, there are some potential dangers with uh, psychedelics. And you take me and my wife, our experience in Amsterdam, we just happened into a really good guide. I mean, that, that was blind luck, right? We could have happened into a really bad guide. And so part of this is if we have religious protections for what I really think are religious acts, um, then we can come out of the shadows rather than the first guide you go to is the only one you happen to know about. Uh, we can have a number of guides in the community and word will get out, reputation, some will be good, some should be avoided. And can you explain to those watching, many of whom probably don't even have uh, much experience or any idea with psychedelics, including me, Steve, to be honest with you, like the, the most intense um, thing I've ever put in my body is chocolate milk. So, so explain what a guide is and um, how, uh, how that works and what you mean by, because uh, I can see what you mean uh, around like having a community around this, having some protections around this, which, which seems uh, really important, particularly as, uh, you know, we're talking about something that is illegal um, on its own, right, uh, to do in the state of Utah. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, that kind of goes without saying. But what is a guide? What does that mean? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, undisputed that mushrooms and other psychedelic experiences can have positive effects on humans. You see a lot of medicalization going on. We're about to have FDA approval for psilocybin mushrooms to treat uh, chronic depression. This is coming out of great research at John Hopkins. And uh, there, the way they administer, it's, it's uh, you know, in a very controlled setting. And so there's a lot of safety in that. Well, the way people often experience psilocybin mushrooms is at a concert, you know, out, out in nature. And uh, some of those things can be beautiful, but if it's your first time, second time, it can be really scary. And so a guide is someone who helps make sure that the person is safe. The, the reason these things work to heal the soul, I can say, the reason they help us progress is because they put us in these open, vulnerable states. And so we can process things. We can look at things in our life. Well, those vulnerable states also can lead to abuse, um, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. They can lead to trauma if we have a bad experience and can't process it. 
And so a guide is someone who helps make sure we have a good experience. Then on the other end of that, I'm really a big believer in people who've worked really hard to get these licenses. They've studied a lot. And so you have a lot of therapists out there who part of a psychedelic experience often should be a licensed professional or someone with a lot of training, a lot of experience to help us work through. These doors have been opened. Well, what does that mean? How can those experiences improve our lives? Has it healed you? In many, many ways. Um, it's just amazing. I mean, my wife, people ask her, what do you, what do you think about this? Isn't this crazy? She says, man, I like this version of Steve. He's healthy. He's happy. Um, it helps me realize things. I'll give you one. I realized um, that my entire life, I've only loved partially, that I haven't loved fiercely. And that broke my heart to realize that my wife, my kids, everyone in my life who depends on me, I haven't loved fiercely because I've had issues in me that I needed to work on and correct. And so typically in a ceremony at some point, a good ceremony, there's this gooey sobbing puddle of Steve in the middle of, room, of the room. And that's psychedelic trauma if you don't come out of that and you need someone to help you come out of it. And I've been fortunate that I've been lifted every time. Like, wow, that's really crappy that I don't love fiercely. Here's what I can do to change that. And so now I'm loving fiercely and uh, just pouring my heart out to my wife and kids and um, life's a lot better because of it. So what's the name of your church? It's the Divine Assembly. And uh, so our website is thedivineassembly.org. And it is uh, organized along the lines of the growth pattern of mushrooms uh, they have the mycelium, which you can call the roots, that there's no central tap root. So it's a disintermediated uh, religion where because everyone can commune directly with the divine, there's no need for me to tell people other than be safe, here's safety practices, commune with the divine and find out what's right in your life, what can help you. So the way it'll be governed is different than maybe um, some folks, particularly in Utah, may be used to, which is you're not calling yourself like a prophet. Yeah, not at all. I'm a lawyer. Some sort of leader of this movement. You said you're a lawyer? I'm a lawyer. Heaven, heaven help you if I'm your religious guide. <laughs> That's incredible, a lawyer. So so where? how do people get involved? If people have, if people have concerns about this, um, they go to the website. I mean, do, do you have to join? You have to become a member of the church, I assume? Well, if you, uh, if you want to be part of the community, if you want to have the protections, the legal protections that come with the religion, then yeah. And so all we're asking is give name and email. And it is a venerable religious tradition to take on a new name. So if people don't feel comfortable doing that, uh, they can join with uh, a, a new name and, and make up an email. So I'll tell you, back to the organization, one thing, you look at most religions, and they are hierarchical, top-down dogma. And the only people who receive real revelation would be the founder and maybe some early acolytes. Then everyone else, they have to conform to that, right? If, mm -hmm. if they see something different, then that's blasphemy. That's heresy. And so I love the idea that you and I are very different people, right? I mean, we're different from everyone else walking the planet. 
So why shouldn't your experience with the divine be something meaningful to you that incorporates everything you are, what you have in life, in my experience would be something different. It does, we're just going to approach the divine in different ways and get different lessons. So when I, I've seen the divine, I have. And to me, it's in the form of my wife and my kids. I mean, I see them as the absolute gods that they are. And uh, that has meaning to me, to know that I live and walk the earth with, with gods. And that's where the name Divine Assembly comes with. It's out of Psalms. It says that God met with the assembly of the gods, the divine assembly of gods, and counseled them basically to be better. So that's for me, and that has meaning. As William James says, that's noetic. It's authoritative to me, but no one else has to believe it. If anyone else wants to believe that my wife and my kids are their gods, that's weird. Uh, you know, they should go out and have their own experience. Now, my wife might love it, but uh, <laughs> uh, no one should probably give another human that kind of power. So go out and commune with your own gods and uh, get, get your own revelations. Have you ever had chocolate milk, though, Steve? I love chocolate milk. It's I'm with so you. good. To me, a perfect day starts with toast, with peanut butter and jam and chocolate milk. Could I start a religion? And, you know, I'm, I'm half serious, half, uh, half joking. Well, I'm probably mostly joking. But could I start a religion around chocolate milk and have, like, the same uh, protections that – I mean, what do you need to do? I mean, what does it mean to start a religion? Do you just have to, like, pay a licensing fee and there you are? Yeah, that's a fantastic decision. If, if mine doesn't work out, start yours. I might, I might be there with you. Join in, um, my friend. So the thing, the thing that courts look for, um, as they should, is the sincerity of belief. So there are two really good cases. Um, one, the United States Supreme Court unanimously recognized an ayahuasca church. And ayahuasca, that's, that's like the big hallucinogenic. That's a serious experience. Um, and then another district court that also recognized a different ayahuasca church and um, told the DEA, leave them alone. As a matter of fact, make it so that they can easily import their sacrament. And what they looked at is they looked at the sincerity of belief of the, uh, the worshipers. And so, you know, you see folks trying to start religions, but out of the gate, uh, you know, it's like Church of the Holy Bongload Ripper. Um, you don't, you don't look too sincere there. And, uh, you know, I think that I'm really sincere that uh, I believe I've communed with the divine. And, you know, down the road, uh, prosecutors and, and courts, they might not agree with me, but that is my noetic truth. And uh, the people who are coming to uh, this religion, it's their truth that we really do think we are having religious experiences. Well, your legal background is going to help you in any fights that may be ahead. I wonder, though, do you see this state, like the state of Utah as a whole, evolving on the use of drugs, the different kind of drugs? We went through the medical marijuana um, exercise, and, you know, I believe medical marijuana in some form or another is, is legal. Obviously, a lot of states have just legalized marijuana entirely. Do you think Utah is evolving? Yeah, I mean, marijuana, uh, cannabis, there was so much effort put into banning that, that when the walls started to come down on that, they really came down on other substances. And uh, thanks to largely John Hopkins and some great individuals, 
um, psychedelics were quietly coming along in the medical field. They really were used pervasively in the late 50s, early 60s, before they were banned in the 70s, kind of unthinkingly banned. And uh, there really are some, because to be a Schedule One controlled substance, there needs to be no therapeutic benefit. And uh, there clearly are therapeutic benefits. I mean, almost miraculous benefits for uh, people with depression, people suffering addiction, um, PTSD. So you're going to see these substances rescheduled. And as they get rescheduled, they'll be destigmatized uh, to a large degree. But to answer your question about in Utah, um, there is a ton of psychedelic use in Utah. People don't know that, but there's a ton. And uh, I think bringing together that community and allowing for some better safety protocols and practices to evolve, that's a step forward. How often should, or do you recommend, or how often do people do this? How often do they have this experience? I love your questions. Thank you. Um, you've done your homework. Um, what I tell people is maybe never is the answer. And especially if people have um, tendencies toward uh, schizophrenia or some other mental health issues, they really should be cautious, really talk to some professionals who know what they're doing. And I'd say anyone who's going to do this, pick your guide with the same care you'd pick a brain surgeon. Um, you know, get someone who's, who's really good. And so I want to be clear that to belong to the divine assembly, no one ever needs to feel any pressure to do psychedelics. Back to your chocolate milk question, sort of. Um, there are different ways to commune with the divine. Um, William James said that we, we meet the divine in mystical states of consciousness. So that could be meditation. It could be prayer. It could be scripture study. It could be song. Um, what I tell people is if you're headed toward an, a, a psychedelic experience, a ceremony, and you don't feel 100% comfortable, even if you're there, don't do it. And so people will know when they're ready have a lot of conversations and go into this wisely. And I don't think we should, you know, you'll just kind of know, I don't think we should do these tons and tons and tons. Cause I think the point really is kind of to exist more and more in this great state of consciousness without substances. I mean, these really are a shortcut to open some doors and, you know, if people feel they should use them every month or whatever they feel that's great. They can determine that. I don't have any set schedule. Uh, to me, they just kind of called me like, okay, I think I'm ready for an experience. And like I said, mine tend to be pretty intense. They're exhausting. And so sometimes I'm like, uh, I'm probably ready, but I might put it off for a week or two. Uh, that's fascinating. Well, I wish you the best of luck, Steve, uh, everything you're doing. Again, what do you want to give the website for the, for the church again so people can learn more? the divine org, and there we have faqs we have some good information we're still uh we're still ginning up and uh want to put a lot more safety information on there for for one thing well i appreciate you coming on best of luck steve thank you see ya take care this has been state of utah presented by silicon slopes commons i have been and will continue to be clint betts thank you for tuning in we want you to think of this as your show if you want guests, you want us to cover topics, if you want us to do anything, basically, we'll do it. 
Email us at stateofutah at siliconslopes.com, and we'll cover it. Today we covered drugs with everything happening in the world. We covered drugs, and that's all because of you. I don't know what that says about you, those who watch us, but we talked about marijuana and psychedelic mushrooms because you asked us to. You sent us an email at stateofutah at siliconslopes.com, and here we are. We covered drugs this week. This week in politics, we covered drugs. A lot going on in the world, in the state, in your city, in your house. So thanks for tuning in. This is State of Utah, presented by Silicon Slopes Comments, and I'm Clint Betts.